Father, um, calm our hearts this morning. The bustle and the busyness is real, and it's something we all experience and know. It's the good work that you prepared beforehand for us to do today. And sometimes it speeds so fast ahead that we forget to turn on the engine. And so I just pray that this would be a time this morning for us to do that. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us a slowness in our heart to receive from you. And then I pray that uh, what, what gets to happen in this room would be uh, merely a starting point of a desire that we would be early with you to, to get our engine going. Uh, not because of duty, Father, but because of felt need and felt desire. Help us to be men who are wholly yours. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a phenomenon in my house uh, which I call repetition. And it's because I have young children, which means every day really does start feeling like Groundhog Day. If you're familiar with that. The same time awake, the same routine in the morning. You're half awake, but you're putting the bottle into the microwave, which you don't tell your wife because you don't want to microwave milk, but you need it to be warm, and you grab the blanket, and you walk up the stairs, and you know exactly where the gate is with your eyes closed. It's just a sense of repetition over and over again. One such thing uh, that has crept in and become repeated over and over again is my son, who's two, the movie he wants to watch all the time. There is no movie good enough that you can watch it 63 times in a row and still enjoy it. <laughs> it's not possible, except with him. And all he says is this, buzz, buzz, buzz. And I think it's kind of cute, so I'll even ask him, even though I know, what movie do you want to you you watch? And he loves, in the darkness of the morning, to put on Buzz Lightyear. And he'll just say Buzz over and over again. And I'll enjoy my time with him, and I'll, I'll lay there, and he'll say Buzz every time Buzz comes on the screen. It's Toy Story. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie itself, but it's kind of cute, and it's actually really well done. And it will hit you as an adult if you watch all three of them, but you need to have about six or seven hours to do so. Woody is the old favorite toy. He's the cowboy. He's the main star of the movie. But not really for long, because there is a new toy that comes in. And so Annie, this kid, uh, who has always loved Woody the most, all of a sudden gets a new gift. This new gift happens to be the flashiest, newest, technology space guy, Buzz Lightyear. And you might imagine what happens... If you had kids, the new toy quickly starts to replace the old one. Now, the old one sticks around. It's not as if it's not cared for. It's just not cared for quite as much because there's a new favorite. And so in the show, what happens is Woody meets Buzz and immediately senses jealousy. Buzz, who's kind of naive and completely unaware to the fact that he's been made the favorite, shows off a little bit. He's got wings. Woody's a cowboy. He's got boots. Buzz has a button that you can press, and he'll chop. He's convinced that he can actually fly, and all the other toys are convinced that he can fly too. In other words, he can, 
not only be something that is favorite to Andy, he can do things that would make him the favorite to Andy. And the whole theme of the show is that Woody grows in jealousy over Buzz. It actually turns into intense anger and hatred towards Buzz, and he devises a plan to get rid of Buzz. His plan is to simply knock him off the dresser into the abyss that's between the wall and the dresser, forever eliminating any need for, for Buzz and the other toys. What ends up happening inadvertently is that there is a knocking of Buzz. He falls out the window and everyone assumes that he's died. They all turn on Woody. And the fun part of the story, you guys are all going to go watch it now, aren't you? <laughs> the fun part of the story is that reconciliation actually happens in the end because what Woody thought was meant for evil ends up working out for good. Now, this is going to sound crazy, but that's actually a very quick summary of the life of Joseph. Everything that was intended for evil works out for good in the end. That's Genesis 50-20. It is the theme verse of the life of Joseph. But what happens is, there's a favorite son of the father. It's Joseph. And his ten older brothers aren't too fond of the idea that he's the favorite. And what begins in them is jealousy, intensifies into hatred. And unbridled jealousy, if it's not kept in check, eventually becomes envy, where they want him dead. It's actually not unfamiliar to the actual favorite son of the father. And that's what we're going to look at today, but I think what we need to do to start off is actually just have a quick discussion about jealousy. The reason is, it's a major theme in the narrative that we're going to look at today. I can also say, as a, as a man, that it is something that we are all tempted by, and probably will be tempted by at some point today. It's incredibly relevant. Jealousy is uh, it's progressive. You kind of heard it in the story, but let, let me maybe say it this way, for the sake of practical discussion. Jealousy is... I don't have what I want. Or, I want what I don't have. I'll say that again. Jealousy is, I don't have what I want, or I want what I don't have. Okay? If that's not kept in check, it quickly will become hatred. Hatred is an emotional response to jealousy. It's, I hate that they have it. Can you see how it's starting to become personal. I hate that they have the thing that I don't. I hate that they have the thing that I want. And if that isn't stopped and kept in check, it will become what we know as envy. And envy is, I don't want you to have what you have. Or even worse, I want you to suffer harm for having it. And so, jealousy is actually incredibly progressive and it's also very dangerous. It's born from a place of unmet or threatened desires. 
Something we do not have and want or something that we fear losing. If you ever wonder where you might be jealous, let me ask you a different question. Are you disappointed? Disappointment comes from a place of unmet desires or threatened desires. Let me ask you a different question. Are you discontent in some area of your life? Disappointment and discontentment are seedbeds for jealousy to grow into hatred and to grow into envy. We have to keep those places in check. <clears throat> and as you heard me talk about <clears throat> excuse me, the progressive nature of jealousy, when it goes from a place of jealousy to hatred, it starts becoming about the other person. It becomes personal. It becomes relational. And envy is the most intense form of that. Where it's no longer about the thing that's missing, it's about the death of the person who has it. It's Woody wanting to knock Buzz off the top of the dresser. Because he doesn't have wings and he's not the favorite. We've all experienced this in our lives. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, we may not sense jealousy from seeing a bank vault that's full of money. But we might experience jealousy towards someone if we find out that vault is theirs. Different example. Um, we may not sense jealousy from driving by a beautiful house. But we might experience jealousy if we meet the guy who owns it and we conclude that we're just as capable as him. Or perhaps this. We might not sense jealousy from meeting a really good-looking guy. But we might experience jealousy if we see him speaking to our wife or speaking to our girlfriend. Because these guys have something that we want and we don't have, and it makes us upset. It might actually start making us even angry or hate the guy. All the while, what has he done wrong? Little or nothing. You see, it's his existence that's the problem. But internally, we'll create schemes in our mind and reasons for not liking that guy. The unmet desire in us slowly grows and it starts to become really lethal. Where envy sets in and we might even wish the other person lost everything that we wish we had that they have. And we no longer want what they have really, we just want them gone. We want them out of the way. We're convinced that they are the problem. And all the while, all we really need to do is look in to find that, no, Woody, you're the problem. I call this the Tom Brady effect. You know what I mean. I hate that guy. <laughs> right? I just want him to lose. I literally had a conversation about this after an interview with Tom Brady where he said that there's got to be something more. It's another talk for another day. A guy who's won Super Bowls, is, is married to the, arguably the world's most beautiful woman, uh, has wealth that he probably can't spend in his lifetime, maybe in his children's either. Uh, let's admit it, he's a great-looking guy. 
He's athletic. He's popular. He has fame and influence. He basically has everything that the world could possibly offer. And a friend of mine said, Tom Brady, I hate you. I want you to lose. You're good at everything. You have everything. And I'm supposed to be you. It's the Tom Brady effect. And it's funny, but it's also lethal, isn't it? I don't know Tom Brady. I don't know anything about him. So why do I have so much angst against him? Well, in kind of a harmless way, there's a sense of jealousy there. I want what he has becomes, I hate that he has all that, becomes... I hope he loses everything. Starting with, well, after Sunday, he might not make it to the Super Bowl if you watch the game. Unbridled jealousy is dangerous. And it's not just dangerous for us. It's dangerous for our relationships. It's personal. And we've got to keep it in check. It can grow into the monster of envy. And this is especially true in families. Because favoritism tends to happen inside the walls of a family. Anybody in here have more than two siblings? That's a good number in the room. The larger the family, the more this reality tends to set in. And sometimes it can be when there's two siblings and it's obvious that one is favored by mom or dad. What we're going to see in the life of Joseph is that there is an obvious favorite Son of the Father. Keep in mind, there's, there's 12 boys. 12 young men. You could field a football team with Jacob's family. And can you imagine the jockeying for position and for power that would take place? But there's one Buzz Lightyear that rises to the top and it causes problems. And what we're going to see in Joseph is a window actually into the person of Jesus Christ, because He is the ultimate favorite Son of the Father. And how the brothers respond to Joseph is often how mankind responds to Him. The favorite Son of the Father is the object of jealousy, hatred, and envy. The favorite Son of the Father is sent to seek His brother's well-being And we're going to see that the favorite son of the father is betrayed so that forgiveness might mend what's broken. I'll say that again because those were three points and it's early. Okay? The favorite son of the father is the object of jealousy, hatred, and envy. The favorite son of the father is sent to seek his brother's well-being. And the favorite son of the father is betrayed so that forgiveness might mend what is broken. We're going to look at a fair part of Scripture you can see on your handout. Follow along with me. Genesis 37. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a rich robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, 
Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. It doesn't stop there, does it? Then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream, brothers. Behold, the, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father, to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Okay, let's pause there for a moment. Joseph is out in the fields. He's possibly being mistreated by his brothers. It says that he brings a a bad report. It's a bad word, as if words were being spoken. And he, he returns and he, he reports it to his father. Okay, No doubt the ten older brothers who are still in the field would see this as tattling. Younger brothers gone to dad to tell something bad about them. If you know their history, you know it's probably because they were actually doing something wrong. They're not prone to be rule followers. And so he comes back and he he tells his father Jacob. And his father Jacob responds by being his greatest advocate. As the text tells us, Jacob loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. And so Joseph is indisputably the favorite son. You know what's strange about that? He's not actually the rightful heir. He's not the firstborn son. He's the 11th born son. He is way down the totem pole of the brothers. But he is the firstborn son of his father's favorite wife, Rachel. It is her firstborn that catches the father's eye and the father's heart. And so Joseph gets honored and he gets celebrated above all his other brothers. And his brothers know it. And now they have to see it. Because Jacob gives Joseph a robe of many colors. They can no longer go in the fields with him without him sticking out. We know from the rest of the story that he wore it. Proudly. A gift from the Father. He's set apart. He's positively different in his dad's eyes. But in his brother's eyes, as you can tell from the language, they could not speak peacefully to him. They hated him. They hated him even more. His brothers were intensely jealous of him. Jealousy was born in his brother's hearts, and it's not once but twice mentioned as a growing hatred for him. They can't even speak peacefully. They can't They have no shalom with Him. That's what that literally means. There's no wholeness. There's no relationship left. It's broken. They don't even want to be around Him. 
Now, on one hand, can you sympathize with the brother's jealousy? That tattling, robe-wearing, 11th son. (laughs) Prancing around like he's dad's trophy. Right? And if you're an older brother in the room, you've probably resorted to physical um, nonviolence on such a brother yourself. Right? I sympathize with that. Let me pause. Perhaps you've been on the bad end of favoritism in your family of origin. And it's not funny. It's painful. Or perhaps you are like Jacob, the father, and have shown favoritism. And in your mid or your later years, you've realized that you did such a thing. That's what this morning's for. Favoritism does cause relational issues, but the jealousy that is born from it is an internal issue. The favoritism incites the jealousy that exists within. The favoritism pokes the bear. The favoritism pours fuel on the fire. But we have to go inside and look at the fire. What unmet desires or what threatened desires within me would make me respond so harshly or negatively to what is going on? What is it I'm longing for that isn't happening? That I'm now angry, even hateful, even wanting my brother to disappear. That's where this is going. When they see the favorite son of the father, they burn inside. They burn with hatred. And we're going to find out they actually start to burn with envy. Now this is not surprising because the favorite son of the father is often the object of jealousy, hatred, and envy. Listen to this. It's not on your sheet. Matthew 27. At the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? Or Jesus, who is called Christ? A sentence we often skip. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two of you do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Brothers, unbridled jealousy is what led to Jesus Christ being placed on that cross.
They were not simply jealous of his knowledge. They weren't simply jealous of his power. They weren't simply threatened by his influence. They hated him. And it led to them eventually wanting him destroyed and removed. Because the favorite son of the father is often the object of jealousy, hatred, and envy. And if it begins with desires within, we need to learn to confess it, to keep it in check so that it does not become the monster that it can be. And that's what we see happening with the brothers. Continuing in Genesis 37, how would Joseph respond? Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent Joseph from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Okay, th this was a dangerous journey for Joseph to undertake. To go to Shechem alone. You would only need to turn back three chapters to Genesis 34 and you would realize that the, the people of Shechem hated the sons of Jacob. They knew them. And the reason they hated them was because the sons of Jacob had massacred the men in that town. And the reason they had massacred the men in that town is because one of them raped their sister Dinah. What audacity for them to return back to that town. It's dangerous. But it would mean also that it's doubly dangerous for Joseph to go there alone. Yet Joseph seeks after his jealousy, hate-filled brothers. This is also a long journey for Joseph to undertake. Shechem is about 76 miles north of Hebron. And Dothan was another day's journey even from there. So Joseph literally would have traveled about 100 miles on foot. To find brothers who openly despised and hated him. And more than that, the reason he is given and the reason he gives for going is to, and you can see it in the text, ensure their well-being. They could not speak shalom to him, but he seeks their shalom anyways. The favorite son of the father is sent to seek his brother Shalom, even amidst their hostility. And Shalom is an interesting word. We're not going to dive into it and dissect it too much this morning. Uh, we tend to think of it just as peace, which makes it very circumstantial, and it's much larger than that. It speaks towards wholeness, towards, towards flourishing. Okay? It's like the, the, the robe itself that Joseph is wearing, how there's different tapestries that have been weaved into this beautiful garment of one. That's in shalom. 
Whereas if you just took those pieces and laid them out, though there's no hostility, it's not shalom. Tim Keller says it this way in Generous Justice. Shalom means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension. Physical, emotional, social, and spiritual. Because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. Joseph is seeking his brother's well-being. Shalom. They hate him. And this is exactly what the favorite son of the father intends to do. To seek their peace amidst their hostility. Ephesians 2 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. He's our shalom. Who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the, Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. To those who were far off. It's the beautiful bookend in this short passage in Ephesians. The pursuit of jealous, far-off brothers may be long and dangerous, but for the sake of their peace, of their shalom, of their wholeness, of their reconciliation, of their flourishing, it's worth it to the favorite son of the Father. He seeks his lost brothers. Though it's dangerous and it's long. And that kind of makes jealousy seem foolish, doesn't it? It's almost a behind-the-scenes look that the brothers don't get to see. That though they hate their favorite little brother, their favorite little brother is seeking after them. And that's what we see in the favorite son of the father. That though there might be hostility perceived between us and God, Jesus, the older brother, the favorite son of the Father, he will seek even unto death to destroy the hostility that exists in us. So that we might have shalom. So that we might have peace. But how will he accomplish such a thing? And this is where we're closing. It's through betrayal and unthinkable forgiveness. Genesis 37. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to what? Envy sets in. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands and said, Let's, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. 
that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to the father. And so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the rich robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sit down to eat. Can you imagine? Pause for a second. We have thrown our brother into a pit with no water where he will surely die unless someone lifts him out. Let's have lunch. How hardened you can become that you would watch him die and feast yourself. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother. He is our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up. They lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When they see Joseph, they conspire against him to kill him. They no longer simply want what he has, but through the hatred and jealousy that's unbridled, they wish him altogether dead. And they use lies to justify their betrayal of him, the favorite son of the father. Listen to this. They strip him of his robe and they throw him into the pit. And kneeling before Jesus, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. Joseph's brothers sell him as a slave, betraying him for 20 shekels of silver. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I hand Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Joseph's handed over to the enemies of Israel, betrayed by his brothers. Jesus is handed over to the Romans, the enemies of the Jews, to be crucified. But that's not where the story ends. You see, Joseph was raised to a place of power because God had a different sequence of events in mind. And when he came to the place of power, there happened to be a famine. And when there was a famine, you had to go to Pharaoh to get some food. And these brothers who think that their betrayed younger brother is dead and lost, they're reunited to him. Because Joseph has been raised to the second place of power in all of Egypt. And he is in charge of the food. I'm going to task you with something today. Genesis 45. It's on your sheet. Don't get distracted now. I want you to read it this week. Because this is what you're going to see. The favorite son of the father could have crushed them. 
He could have sought vengeance and justice. And you know what he does? He crushes their jealousy and their hatred and weeps over them. Uncontrollably, you'll see it in that passage. He forgives them. It's outlandish. But the favorite son of the father had to be betrayed so that forgiveness might mend what was broken. And our Lord Jesus Christ, the favorite Son of the Father, when He has been betrayed, handed over for simple pennies, and He's hanging on the cross, and He could at any moment have crushed, had called on the angels to come down, and in the power of God Almighty, destroyed everyone who stood against Him and enacted justice in doing so because of the jealousy and the hatred. He says this with His dying breath, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Brothers, it's not so bad to have your sheaf bow down to the favorite son of the Father. And if you'll let forgiveness have its way in your life, you will experience shalom. And your jealousy will get bridled. And you'll feel free. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. Let me pray. Father, thank You for the forgiveness that You give. It is not a stamp of approval. It is a passageway into fullness of life. I pray every man in here would know it. If they need it, that they would seek it. And if there is not shalom, and there is the presence of jealousy, that You would make it known to us today. Help us to be honest before You and other men. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.